Well, this morning we're going to take a look at probably what is, for many of us, a very familiar passage, but it's also a passage that I believe that many of us misunderstand. The more I've studied the Ten Commandments, the more I'm convinced that we come to those words, those ten words as they're called in the the Jewish culture, uh, with a bigger misunderstanding. We look at it one way, but I think God's presenting it an entirely different way. Uh, And why, you may wonder, uh, do we maybe misunderstand those? I think it centers not on the meaning of the words. Most of us can read the words and go, I understand what he's saying. That's not what we're talking about. Rather, we tend to look at this list as a to-do list. You with me? Anyway, I I like lists. I love to-do lists. That's how I get things done in life. But I think we look at the Ten Commandments as a to-do list. And we look at it and go, well, I need to do this. 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 And I don't know if you noticed, but as I said that, we said the word I a lot, didn't we? And we shift the focus of the Ten Commandments away from God and His presence to what we do. And I want you to look at that this morning with me because I had really never noticed that until I was studying this week for this, this, um, this test, <laughs> for this sermon. Um, there's two accounts in the Bible of the Ten Commandments. One's located in Exodus and one is in Deuteronomy. I started studying this week in Exodus and ended up in Deuteronomy because I think Deuteronomy gives us the, uh, a fuller, not a fuller, but a, a, a clearer understanding of what the application of them are. Because Moses, when he shares the words in Deuteronomy, they're not at the mount of uh, uh, where the, the Ten Commandments were given. They are out on the plain of Moab. We all know where that is. Uh, that's called the country of Jordan today. Uh, so it's east of the Dead Sea. And the people have already lived with the lists that we're going to look at for a little while. They're making progress to the Promised Land. They've had some victories militarily. But there's been some things happen that have going to cause some changes. One of those, and probably the biggest one, is that Moses is not going to be allowed to go into the promised land. Now, you may find that to be a strange development, but it is what happened. Uh, and he would let, God would let him go to the top of Mount Pisgah uh, and look out and see the land. He'd let him see where they were going to go, but Moses himself didn't get to go, which you kind of go, that's interesting. So what I want us to do is look at the beginning jump to chapter 10 for a second and then come back to those. So kind of, kind of bear with me because we're going to go the long way uh, to the end. But not long for some of those of you who worry about being long, okay? I was told during the greeting time, 12 o'clock, Pastor. I said, okay. No, preacher is what he said. All right. The first thing I want you to notice is right there in verse 6. The Scripture says this, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? So what I want you to see, first of all, is that God has provided amazing grace. Amen? We like the song Amazing Grace, don't we? It's one of our favorite hymns. Amazing Grace. Who gave it to us? God did. As we begin this, we need to grasp the setting so we can understand what God is talking about here. Consider the context. Here's what's happened to the people. They've been miraculously delivered from Egypt. We sent a sermon a week or two ago on that exact issue of getting out of there and God moving, taking them across the promise, uh, to the, towards the promised land. They've begun this journey to the promised land. They've seen God turn bitter water into sweet water. They've seen God provide manna from heaven so they can survive. They've listened to Jethro's advice, uh, not to cipher, but to change the way they're structured. 
Some of you will get that in a minute. Uh, and they're going to have a, such an, a system of governance that divides up the leadership. And they're going to, they've traveled to the land of Sinai. They've come to the high mountain. God has told them the list. And he has prepared for them a great encounter where God, Moses has gone and gotten the Ten Commandments. And it was here we find God lays out an amazing description of his relationship with his people. Look at verse 6 again. He says, I am the Lord your God. Wow. I think sometimes we rush past verses like that and just miss it. He is our God. He's the one, for these folks, had brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God has done an amazing work in their lives. He has set them free from their bondage. He has put them on a path towards their potential. To put it simply, God has provided amazing grace. Not just to be delivered, but to have a destination of a promised land. But first, they needed to do something. They needed to grasp how God was dealing with them and relating to them and help them to understand the impact of this grace in their lives. Again, they, like us, often want to skim past, I am the Lord your God, when we need to stop and camp out there for a moment, to let it sink into our souls, to let it gesticulate in our minds that who he is, is God. And He is different than us. Because it's only in the surrender to God and listening to God and following God and obeying God do we find on a consistent basis do we find that we are the people of God. Now, the next verse begins the list of the Ten Commandments. Well, we're going to take a break for a moment and jump to chapter 10. Look at verse 12 in chapter 10. And now, Israel, what does the Lord God, Lord your God require of you? What does God call of these people named his people who are headed to the promised land? What does he want from them? What does he require of them? What does he demand from them? Here's the list. You ready? But to what? Fear the Lord your God. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. To keep the commandments and statutes for which I am commanding you today for your good. There's five things mentioned in this passage. We went through them kind of quick reading it. But these words come after Moses has come back from the mountain. They already got them repeated again because they remember he broke the first set. He's got a second set. Now they've already traveled some way. And we find in chapter 10 a summary of what God expects from his people. And with the list of ten commandments already been shared before, you would expect to read something about, well, follow the commandments. And he does say that, but that's not the first thing he says. Did you notice that? He talks to us about our heart and our lives. And the first thing he calls them to do is to do this, to live with a fear of God. And you're going, well, you mean like terror, like Halloween terror? No. He's talking about respect. Then we say, God, your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. Your, 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 your workings are not like mine. You're not like me, God. And, and, he, and the idea is that as we do that, as we live out that way, we, we allow him to be God in our lives instead of saying, well, God, you got to bless me. you got to bless me. Instead, we say, God, I want to follow you. And then often the blessings come. He calls them to fear God. Second, he calls them to what? Walk in their ways, in God's ways. How does God live? If you had to use one word to describe God, what would it be? For me, it's this, holy. 
He's holy. Uh Uh-oh. We're in trouble, right? He says, I want you to live like I do. How's that? Holy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm in trouble. I'm in deep trouble. Some of you are in deeper trouble than me, and some are not as much trouble as me. I'm just telling you, this is an area we struggle with, isn't it? How does God live? Holy. So the call here is to be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Ooh. To be holy, to walk in His ways. Tall order. Third, He calls them to what? Love God. How do we love God? We read in another passage, what? We love Him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. All those things. That's the kind of love we have for God. And because when we truly love Him, we'll do this. We'll do whatever it takes to bless Him because He's the object of our love. Is He the object of our love? You're thinking, we're never going to make 12 o'clock. Hang in there with me. Fourth, we serve Him with all of our mind and our soul. His call is to put aside our personal agenda, to follow His purpose, His direction, call His, follow His lead, to follow His guide, to follow His direction, to listen to Him as we so often pray. We say, Lord God, God, Lord God, lead it, God, and direct us. You ever prayed that prayer? Do we really mean it? Or do we mean it that God, we want you to bless what we're going to do anyway? There's a change of heart there. And then he finally says in the fifth to keep the commandments. That wasn't the first thing he said. It was the fifth thing he said in the list. But it's more than just the Ten Commandments. We, that's where we get caught up in the list. We get caught up in the checklist. We go, okay, number one, I did that one. Number two, I did that one. Number three, I did that one. Oh, number four, uh, number five, I did that. That's not his call here. It's not just to check the list off. It's, it's bigger than that. It's to understand God's ways as he's revealed it to them and then live that way. To be reflections of God. The word Christian doesn't appear in biblical literature until the book of Acts. But I believe the call to be Christian, Christ-like, is right there in the Old Testament. Though it's not used explicitly. Because he calls them to be what? Like God. Not to be God's, but to be like God. To listen to him. So his grace calls for what? Our obedience. We say, God, whatever, wherever, whenever, whatever you have for us, that's what we'll do. Even if we don't understand it, even if we don't like it, even if we don't know where it leads, even if it means pain and struggling for us personally, or if it means joy and easy, we're good with it. That's a high call, isn't it? So then we come back to chapter 5. And I want us to look at the list. Different scholars have broken the list up differently. Some have broken it up as 5 and 5. I'm going to break it up as 4 and 6. Uh, certain Christian traditions uh, have a different list. They just ma- marry up the different words in different ways sometimes, but all the words are the same. depends on whether you're Eastern Orthodox, uh, Reformed, uh, Catholic, uh, Armenian, whatever. they got all the, they got some variations, but, but the ten are always there. So let's look at those together kind of briefly because we're not looking at detail here. We're looking at the big picture. And I want you to look at it not as a to-do list, but a this is what I'm becoming list. This is who I am because I'm in Christ. This is what God is doing in me because I'm in him and the transformation he's doing us, doing with us. So as we apply the ideas presented in chapter 10, after the second tablets are given, we discover we're called to no longer live unto ourselves, but to live what? Unto the Lord. To say, God, I'm here for you. 
And when we do so, we find our lives becoming more reflective of God in us. This is the shift I want you to consider this morning, is that this list is more about following God's commands because they reflect his presence in us. Not we do these to get, but we are these because we are his. You follow? It's a different way of thinking about it maybe than you thought about, or maybe you've all thought about it, and I'm just the last one to figure it out. I don't know, but here's what I want you to grasp. This is not a checklist of do's and don'ts. Rather, I believe it's a description of how we live when we are in Christ, when we are with the Lord. And it breaks into, for me, two halves. I've already told you I'm going to divide them four and ten. Four and ten. <laughs> That's not ten. Four and six. There's still ten, but I'm going to break them in four. The debate is over number five. That's the one about respecting your parents. Does that come into the loving God side or does it come into the loving people side? And I think it goes in the second half. That's why I did it that way. I'm not infallible. That's just how I broke it up, okay? So there's two sides to these commandments, and we're going to go quickly because of the sake of time. We, I did a series a number of years ago on the Ten Commandments in detail, uh, and, and so I'm not, we're not going to spend the time today. But the first half of this, the first four, is how we reveal our love for God. How do we do that? Again, it's not a I do this to get. It's a because we are, we do. You with me? Kind of a different way of thinking of them, maybe. Look at, let's just read the, the first four together, not out loud, but just listen as I read. You shall, number one, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a, a, a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I... Oh, turn the wrong page. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation who hate me, of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. Third commandment, you shall not take the name of your Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless for who takes his name in vain. Fourth, observe the Sabbath day. To keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that you may... that. that that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. Now, in the first substat, I've got four commandments. A lot of more well-respected theologians than me have got five, okay? I'm not even sure you call me a theologian. I'm just a preacher, okay? But... Let's look at the first one quickly. We can't dig deep for sake of time, but we can do an overview. First of all is this. Once we answer the call to follow God, once we say yes to God, the people of Israel had to say yes to follow God to leave Egypt. They had to follow God across the opened sea. They had to follow God. Just like we do, they had to follow God. And as we do that, and as we listen to Him, here's what begins to happen. We find our affinity with Little g gods fall away. In our culture, that's a struggle. Why? Because we don't have graven images sitting around like some cultures in the world. Uh, I traveled to Seattle this summer with my dad. Uh, it was an experience that we could have a conversation about some other time. But we rode the train in from the airport. 
because we didn't want to rent a car in a big city like that. And as we made the journey in, we passed, I don't know what else to call it, but three Buddhist community churches. They're not churches, obviously, but it looked like the local Baptist church. They were about the size of a local Baptist church. But in the front of it, they had a golden image sitting in front of that building. And you're going, that's weird. We don't have those in New Boston, do we? I'm good with that. But that is the the idea, literally, that he's talking about here is the idea that we look around and we see something that we think, I want to worship that. Now, we struggle with that, don't we? We think, how in the world would anybody want to worship some golden idol somewhere? And yet it what? Happens around the world. It happens all over the place. The, the Word of God says, if you're following me, if you're really listening to my voice, you don't want to do that. It changes the attitude of your life, changes the attitude of your heart. But what we often do is we don't have the golden idols. We have other things that become our gods, little g gods. Maybe it's the struggle with finances. Maybe it's physical aspects that we struggle with. I don't like my self-image, my body image, this, that. Or we deal with emotional issues. Anything that takes us away from God or takes the place of God, excuse me, can become our little g-god. I think we struggle with that in our culture as much as anybody in the world does. We want the stuff that makes us look good. We want the, the house that makes us look successful. We want the clothes that make us look like we know what we're doing when we get up in the morning and get dressed. We do it in different ways. Second, God calls them not to let any graven image get in the way. And again, this is not a huge literal issue in our culture, but I think it's one we struggle with in places, with things, places, people, anything else. Anytime we let anything become more important than listening to God's leading, we're revealing in our lives that God isn't first. It's a different way of thinking about it. It's not, well, I've got to quit that so I can follow God. No, it's when we follow God, those things don't happen. We change. Third, we become people who refuse to take the name of our God in vain. Now, some would like to define that as what? Well, you use the, God, uh, use the Lord's name in vain in your language. Is that part of it? I believe it is. Don't misunderstand. But it's more than that. I think he had a bigger thought here with the way we relate to, the way we think about, the way we even speak about God. Our words have got power. And our words reflect our attitude toward God. How we speak of Him, how we relate to Him, how we have conversations about Him affect and reveal who we are. Fourth, I've got to hurry on. What we do with our time reflects our trust in God. So what God did in the beginning, in the beginning, He did what? He worked six days and then He rested the seventh. Now that was the last day of the week. What day of the week is that now? I don't know. Today's the first day of the week in our culture, right? It's not the last day of the week. So are we supposed to have been here yesterday instead of today? Well, he changed it with, with, the, with the resurrection of Jesus and became the first day of the week. But God is, the idea here is much bigger than whether you do it on Saturday or Sunday. It's the idea of how you reflect God in the use of your life, your time. Do you take advantage of the time you have or do you blow it off? Do you use it wisely or do you ignore what you're doing? Do we fritter away or do we redeem our time? Because the concept of taking a day of rest ultimately reflects this. God, I trust you and I'm dependent on you to provide for me in the six days 
instead of the seven. I've got to have seven. You know, there's cultures around this world that work seven days a week. Seven days a week. It's hard for us to imagine. Some of us work six and a half, don't we? But we don't take that Sabbath, that time off to sit and go, okay, I'm going to step back and think, I'm going to trust you, God, to take care of me. See, how we relate to God is either positively or negatively affected by our relationship with God. Then we look at the second six commands. These are the ones I call how we love people. How do we love God? How do we love people? Again, this is not a prescriptive to-do list. Do these, do these, and you're good. It's rather a description of how we are when we are in relationship with God. So let's look at the, the next six. Number five, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that you may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. Sixth, you shall not murder. Seventh, you shall not commit adultery. Eighth, you shall not steal. Ninth, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Ten, and you shall not cover your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything else. Fifth, and this is the one that often gets put in the relationship side with God because it reflects differently. I, 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 I think it goes in the relating to each other because ultimately the people who create us, you want to think about it that way. The people whom God used to create you have a relationship with you, don't they? We, we, we care for, they care for us until we can take care of ourselves. And then as we age, what happens? The script flips and we have to begin to take care of our parents. I'm in that process now of learning to deal, <laughs> deal with, to, to, to care for my parents as they're aging and nearing the end of life. But it's more complicated than that than we can spend time on. But these are the people God used. Some of those folks are pretty amazing. I mean, any of you got somebody amazing? Any of you? I feel like Elmer Foot here. Any of you got amazing parents or had amazing parents? You're going, man. I just man, they were wonderful. They were great. They infected. They infected me. They affected me. They impacted me. They did everything for. Me. And then some of you go, oh my goodness. Let me tell you. Some of you here this morning. That's your. And I'm sorry that you have that. I hate that for you. But that does not change. The quality of the parent does not change how we relate to them if we are in God. You know, with me? We treat them as God would treat. We have high respect for them. We care for them. We may not agree with their actions. We may agree 100% with their actions. But we still honor them as the Lord commanded. And we walk with them. Sixth. You're all going, oh, got this one, move on. No, let's hang on for a second. Because I think it's bigger than just taking a life. I believe what he's talking about here in number six is this, is that we value life. As people of God, we value life. What does that mean? We value the elderly. Some of you ought to say amen there. We value the elderly, right? We also value the middle-aged folks. Amen. There we go. Y'all are with me now. We also value children. I'm so grateful for the ministry that our church has to children. It's an area that I kind of tell you, I don't even have to think about it very often because they do such a good job. We also value the unborn as Christians because those are people that God has created. They just haven't arrived yet, right? 
So we have a value of life, and it even extends to those actions where we take life accidentally. I was thinking about this issue this week. Some of us think, well, what do you mean? I was thinking about situations where we, we don't take care of things in our life, and we accidentally cause someone to die. I'm grateful that most of us have never had something like this happen, but we haven't done correct maintenance on our vehicles, and we have a blowout because we didn't change the tire, and we hit somebody and the life is lost. You're going, what do you mean? We should care enough about life to take care of the things and do everything we can to prevent the loss of life. That's who we are as followers of God. You're going, is he selling us tires this morning? No. But what I'm saying is we care enough about others to do what we can to take care of life and prevent any kind of damage accidentally either. What do you do about war? Oh, my goodness, there's another one. As long as it's a just war, we should be supporting it. Is it something we should rejoice over? No. But it happens. And we have to step in as followers of God. Seventh, we say, I'm not going to commit adultery. Oh, my goodness. Is he going there? No. The Bible took us there. We'll just go with it, okay? As we follow God, what we do is we respect those boundaries that God established for families. That includes before marriage. That includes as married individuals. And by the way, the Bible very clearly defines marriage as between a, not a partner and a partner, as we call it now, but as a what? A man and a woman. Any other combination is outside the bounds of marriage. So we say, we don't go there. And we respect that truth within this context because it preserves social structure and takes care of our lives in the right way. Eighth, God followers also respect property by refusing to steal. You're going, I've never stolen anything. Uh, I have. I got in trouble as a kid. I stole a candy bar from the 7-Eleven when I was about nine years old. And dad found out and he took me back. I had to give it back and apologize. That was an impact on my life. I'd wanted, and dad says, you don't need candy. Oh, you're right. I'm fat. I got it. But we refuse to steal because God's within us. And you're going, okay, I've never done that. But you know, if we waste our time at work, isn't that a form of stealing? If we take things from the office or from our workplace, isn't that a form of stealing? Stealing the reputation of others by the words we use. We get the words explicitly in a minute, but we damage and steal their reputation. Wow, we just got a bigger picture of that command, didn't we? Hmm. Eighth, we refuse to bear false witness against another. I got to tell you, I, I I spend time on social media like many of you do, but I tell you what, it is a playground for the devil. The stuff that gets posted and said, and arguments that get started, and things. I'm on a, a, a site uh, for the new Big Twelve and seeing the different communities of team members coming in, and they get to bickering on that, and I'm going, turn it off. What a waste of time. You're going, they're bearing false. They don't even know what the other person thinks and they take assumptions. And then we add our own special flavor to it and we engage, don't we? We add our own thoughts and takes on a life of its own. Y'all ever played that game Telephone? Yeah, that happens, doesn't it? For real. And then 10th, he says, God followers refuse to live a life of covetousness. That includes your wife of your neighbor. It includes his house. It includes his new car. It includes 
Everything he has, his lifestyle, well, anything. And by centering our life on living for God and seeking to please him, the things of this world become strangely dim. I love that old hymn. And we therefore refuse to take our eyes off God and our connection with him long enough to covet what others. As we engage with God, we don't look at the rest of them around. So what do you do with Ten Commandments in six minutes? You ready? Here we go. Number one, merely keeping the commands is insufficient. I believe with all of my heart, if we treat the Ten Commandments as a checklist of do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, we've missed it. It's not supposed to be that, I don't believe. When we're te- what we're tempted to do is to reduce the Ten Commandments to this checklist. We make a conditional statement. It's an if-then. If I do this, then I get this. But I think God said didn't set the Ten Commandments as a checklist but where we can attain our eternity, but rather how we live with this approach that changes who we are. We live as if we can somehow earn God's favor, but we can't. Listen to what James said in James 2.10. He says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. I don't know if I, there it is right there. The ugly truth is this, every single one of us, every single one of us is going to break one of the commands at some point. Some of us are going to be uh, really excelling, and we're going to do not two or three of them out, okay? But if you just break one of them, he says we've broken what? All of it. Anybody guiltless in here? Not me. The second aspect of this insufficiency of keeping the commands apart from this relationship with God are the mounds of guilt that we take on ourselves. I don't know about you, but whenever I find myself doing something boneheaded, which it's about every other day in my life. Okay, it's every day in my life. How do I feel? How do you feel? You beat yourself up about it? Do you walk around going, man? I'm trying to figure out who that cartoon character that had the little squiggly lines over his head all the time. That's how I feel. I can never figure out who he was this week. Paul wrote to these words. He says, For God gave us a spirit, what? Not of fear. The spirit he places within us. Not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. See, when I try to fulfill the commandments as a to-do list, I fall into the trap of guilt. And i got to tell you, guilt is a very poor motivation for life. Because it leads us to... It leads us to fear. It leads us to trepidation. It leads us to this sense of just weight. But Christ called us to what? Freedom. Not for freedom's sake, but to live our life unto the Lord. Second, living out God's command does this. It blesses everybody. It blesses all of us. So when we reject living the Ten Commands as a to-do list, we turn what I believe is the second thing to see here and serves as the right motivation to see these in our lives. And it's this, that we can bless God and bless others. Remember, we deal, relate to God, we relate to others, the Ten Commandments. Recall these people who had heard the commandments first were a people who had what? Been supernaturally, miraculously delivered out of bondage. You remember the story? God, he sent all these plagues, they got them out, they got to the water, he got them out, he brought them across the the desert and they weren't ready and then he finally is going to send them in 40 years later. But they listened and followed and God changed them. They had already been set free. So why would they want to live in bondage to a bunch of rules? And yet, if you know anything about Jewish culture, that's exactly what they did. 
Instead, God laid out these guidelines, these guideposts, if you will, evaluation tools maybe, whereby God's people said, we can gauge how we're doing. Are, are these characteristics described here? Are they reflected in our life? You want to memorize the Ten Commandments? Do it. But don't do it as a checklist. Do it as a reflection list. Is this happening in my life? Is this one? Am I keeping God first? Am I honoring my parents? Am I refusing to covet what my neighbors have? Am I really valuing life in whatever form it takes? And am I seeing these changes in me as a result of following with my heart? Jesus spoke about the importance of seeing these commands when he said this, whoever has my commands, wait, wait, wait. Can, can you underline those first three words? Whoever what? Has. He didn't say whoever keeps. He says whoever has my commands. How do you get his commands? We'll get to that in third point. But I want you to grasp once you have them, it begins to change us. Whoever has my commands and then keeps them, lives them out. He it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself in him. That's what Jesus said. Jesus spoke about these having these commands within and then living it out. It's more than a checklist. It's a way to bless God and to bless each other. Third, you can't do it on your own. You can't live this life without, on your own. I can't live this life on my own. We need Jesus to what? Fulfill the commands, to live them out. They don't even make sense to a lost person. I always find it interesting. People who don't know God are going around going, we need to follow the Ten Commandments. Checklist. It's not a checklist. It's a description of who we are. There's a principle I want you to see from these pa- this passage, and, and, and it's the reality that if we're going to see these actions evident in our lives, we have to have a connection with God, a personal connection with God. I'm reminded of the teaching of Jesus. When he spoke about the relationship with the vine, it's one of my favorite images in the New Testament because it fits who we are so much. People in that day were familiar with vineyards. You and me, they look like vines. They may be poison ivy. They may have berries. We don't know the difference, right? But they did. Because God's the one who builds the vineyard and cares for it. And Jesus is the vine always connected to God. And we are his creation, are either connected to the vine, Jesus, or not. My property loves to have a little weed show up called poison ivy. It's like a constant battle for me. I'm I'm deathly allergic to it. If I kind of just walk by, I get it, okay? The other day I had a big old vine growing on the fence. I said, what am I going to do? I can't spray it. It's too big. So I got the clippers, and what I do? I reached down there and cut the bottom off. Nothing changed. It was still green. But I came back the next day, and what happened? It was dying. Why? Because it was not connected to the vine any longer. And that's the image I want you to catch. If you're going to live the life that God has for you that's described in the Ten Commandments, you're going to be someone who is connected to the vine. You cut the vine off at the, at the source the, the, the vine dies. If you're never connected to the vine, you're never grafted into the vine is the image that the New Testament talks about. We miss it. This is what Jesus said. I am the vine. We are the branches. You go, but I want to be the vine. You don't get the vine's job. Sorry. You get to be a branch. Be the best branch you can be. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me stays connected to me, and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, because apart from me, you're dead. Friend, each for one of us needs to be connected to Jesus. And as we are, what happens is all the stuff mentioned in, in, in the Exodus passage, the Deuteronomy passage, whichever list you want to look at, those things mentioned in the Ten Commands become true in our lives. We begin to live out these things. We value life. We value our parents. We don't have other gods in our life. With all the things in the list, we don't go, well, i got to do that. No, we become that. We become the people of God. Because trying to live those out without Jesus is like trying to be a healthy produce maker without a connection to the vine. So I'm here to tell you, if you're not connected to the vine, you're just spinning your wheels when it comes to the Ten Commandments. But if you are connected to the vine, this is the stuff that should be coming out of you. Because he's alive in you and growing in you. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Christ. That's the place to start. Get connected to the vine. Ask him to give you that connection. You go, well, I've always had it. We're not born with it. We have to come to a place where we ask him for it. For many of us, we're connected, but we're not really doing well. Ask God to renew that vine connection for you, and he'll change you. Father God, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to be in worship today. We thank you for these words that are given as Lord, as descriptors of who we are, I pray, God, that as we get closer to you, we will see these come evident in our life. I pray, God, that you will guide those who need to make some type of public decision this morning, those who need to make a private decision in their seat. That Father, we would respond according to your will. We pray your hand on these next few moments in Jesus' name.